I appreciate Rick's quick introduction. This is only the second time that Debbie and I have been at this church. The first time was when we had our picnic back in the summer, and we were fresh. We were brand new uh, on staff. We've only been on staff about four months, having served overseas, having served in Bangkok, where I pastored a church, international church there for a couple of years. Came back here to the Pacific Northwest, awaiting God's next kingdom assignment, and little did we know that the next kingdom assignment would be right here in the Pacific Northwest. So we are native Southern Californians, sorry to put it to you that way, but, but we are really embracing life in the Pacific Northwest. It's, it's just great. We get, and particularly living in Bangkok for two years, um, it's great to be able to put on coats and sweaters and sweatshirts here, because you can't do that over there. The first three Sundays of December, I'm guessing that uh, your pastor, Travis, uh, skillfully guided you here uh, through Romans chapter 7, just as Pastor Scott guided us through Romans chapter 7 there. Also, though, during the, the past weeks of December, we've had a focus on Advent, on that anticipation and preparation for the coming, for the arrival of the Christ child. We've encouraged you as families to utilize some of the resources that we made available, online resources, as well as um, I know you did uh, an Advent candle lighting here as we did in West Lynn as well. I, I believe, though, you finished the year off well. I, I believe you had a caroling service here. Is that right? We had to, we had to cancel ours in West Lynn because too much ice on the road up there. So... That was all uh, designed uh, intentionally to, uh, to equip us to embrace the season. And I, I told Pastor Scott, I said, I love the Advent season because it gives us an excuse or another reason to be very intentional about our disciple building, particularly with our families, particularly with that next generation. And so hopefully uh, you took advantage of that. Last Sunday, Christmas Eve, well, uh, well your pastor was uh, preaching on Luke chapter 2, I believe. Uh, I had the opportunity to be in the pulpit at West Lynn and shared uh, God's word out of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2, 6, and 7. And we called that um, unwrapping Advent's promises. Now, I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but I do want to use that as a springboard. So let me give you the kind of the closing points. And that passage, Isaiah chapter 9, is a familiar one. Uh, there's, some, there's some great terms that are used throughout that passage. We learned last week that as Emmanuel, that baby Jesus, is none other than the sovereign king whose government has no end. And so therefore, at Christmas, Jesus is basically saying he's inviting us. He's inviting us to worship him as sovereign king, as wonderful counselor. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus comes to us with great wisdom, really miraculous wisdom and purpose and a perfect plan, and he's able to relate to us in ways that go beyond our imagination. As mighty God, he is God, 100% God, as well as 100% man, but as mighty God, he has the power to affect those plans, those purposes that he, that he brings with with him as wonderful counselor. As everlasting father, he is the source of everlasting life. He is the entry point to everlasting life. We don't get into eternal life without going through the source, namely, or the door, namely, Jesus. And then finally, as the Prince of Peace, we learn that Jesus reconciles us to himself, 
But then, as a spillover of that, as a, a natural result of that, he also reconciles us with each other. People that maybe we don't get along with. People that maybe we don't like that much. And he does that within the context of the church. And we explored a little bit last week just what is this concept of peace. The Old Testament term is shalom. And you'll hear even modern day Jews in a greeting, they'll, they'll use that term shalom to give a greeting. We have unfortunately defined shalom here in the West as absence of warfare. Absence of conflict. And it is that. But it's way more than that. In fact, there's, uh, there's 242 references of shalom in the Old Testament. And depending on the context, that term can be translated as completeness or wholeness, health, welfare, flourishing, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, fullness, rest, harmony, or as Rick already referenced, in New Life's mission statement, delight. Shalom is a, a delighting in our Creator. Well, guess what? I ended last week by saying, well, that begs some questions. First of all, are we experiencing that kind of shalom in our lives? And we gave the opportunity last week for people who weren't experiencing that, who maybe were visiting our church because it was Christmas Eve, and that's one of the two times in the year that they come, we gave them that opportunity to to get right with and experience this shalom that comes from God. But it also begs the question, well, look around. Where is shalom? Is there any shalom in the world today? And, and you know, that's, that's really what this... Uh, this month-long sermon series that we're going to be doing at both campuses through the month of January, that, that's really what this sermon series uh, is about. It's about asking the questions and, and then living without maybe having all the answers. Now, we, we encouraged you to actually ask friends, ask relatives, maybe people that don't have a relationship with God through Christ. We asked you to ask them, what are the things that you would like to ask of God? And as a result of that, we've come up with a, an, an outline for the next, uh, the next four weeks. Today is merely an introduction to that. Today we're posing the question, is it okay to ask? And we'll get into that in just a minute. But I want to call to your attention, uh, you may not have one of these yet, but there was a stack, I delivered a stack of them here this morning, so you can pick one on the way up. And, and the idea is to pick up one of these postcards and actually give it to a friend and encourage them to come. Because next year, next week, uh, and next year, <laughs> January 7th, uh, Pastor Travis is gonna preach on, are, are we gonna be blown up? You, you read about all kinds of conflicts in the world, whether it be terrorist bombings or whether it be nation states like North Korea uh, threatening us with all different kinds of things. Uh, The corollary question to that next week is, how do we live without fear in a volatile world? That's a question that somebody in our midst uh, had asked of them by a friend. Are we going to get blown up? How How do we live in this kind of a world? January 14th, what is the best way to navigate our polarized world, where we are at odds with each other based on color of skin, based on how we speak, based on where we live, all the different things that that play into that. January 21st and January 28th, we decided to invest two weeks dealing with 
uh, some of the moral failures that have occurred in, uh, in our midst. Uh, this last year, 2017, has been crazy. The, the media, there's been a media frenzy over this, this whole thing of moral failure. So, uh, January 21st, the question is, who is next? Who's going to get caught next? In other words, how do we live in a sexually charged world? And then finally, January 28th, uh, and those of you that are not savvy to social media, this, may, this first question means nothing to you, but I'll read it anyways. How did hashtag me too become the time person of the year? Uh, another way of looking at that is, how do we live in a sexually broken world? And so <clears throat> we're going to invest uh, a month in answering some of those questions. So we'd encourage you to invite friends, invite relatives, invite people who don't follow Jesus to come and see what, what does God's word have to say about this kind of thing. And in the process, we're also going to deal with the question, how does, what does it mean to be a believer in good news or a bearer of good news in a bad news world? In a bad news time, I uh, had a conversation with Taylor just this earlier this last week, and I said, you know, this. I said, your dad and I are really struggling with this topic. Is it okay to ask? Because the answer is yes. And Taylor said, well, then just say, is it okay to ask? Yes. Are there any questions? Benediction and we'll go. No. Um, and I kind of, I kind of feel like doing that because it is okay to ask, but I want to, we want to look at scripture this morning. We want to unpack some passages of scripture and we want to, we want to focus on what does God's word have to, have to say about that. I want to kind of set the table for you, but as I'm doing that, let me encourage you to turn to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, or the, actually the proper translation is Habakkuk. But that sounds a little strange. So Habakkuk, okay? Now, if you don't know where Habakkuk is, go to the Gospel of Matthew and then back up five books, and you'll arrive at Habakkuk. I normally would use a a, a PowerPoint and look at that. My brother in the back, <clears throat> Daniel, way to go, brother. I was just going to say I, I didn't prepare one, and he went ahead and did it for me. So that's awesome. Also, on the uh, on the talk sheets, which I'm going to reference here in just a minute, there are some verses out of Habakkuk. Chapter one that I'd encourage you to to be looking at, but as you, as we as you do that as you turn there, let me just very quickly give you kind of a, a broad sweep of other people in Scripture who asked hard questions uh, to make the case that yes, it's okay to ask. Can you think of some examples in the Old Testament of people who asked God hard questions? Let me give you some. Moses. In Exodus 5, and I don't have slides for this, but you, you might want to jot this down and you can look it up later. Moses chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. Moses turns to the Lord. He's just gone back to Egypt. He's just been commissioned by God to, uh, to deliver God's people. And he comes back to God and says, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me here? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. And you've not delivered your people at all. Or Job. You, you know Job. He has multiple questions that he asks of God. And it's interesting because God responds very specifically to Job 
and, and very, very harshly, you might say, but at the same time, there's a real gentleness there. He challenges Job. He says in Job chapter 38, God says to, to Job, he says, dress for action like a man, and I will question you and make it known to you. He repeats himself uh, two chapters later, basically says the same thing. David, in that psalm that we, we've already uh, seen this morning, we've already read this morning. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? D- David's psalms are full of questions. Not doubts necessarily, but questions. Jeremiah. I love Jeremiah in chapter, Jeremiah chapter 12. Righteous are you, O Lord. Notice how he starts. He starts with acknowledging who God is, his character. Righteous are you, O Lord. But I'm going to complain to you. <laughs> I'm going to plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? And then finally, if that isn't enough, Jesus himself asks a very serious question on the cross. You remember it? My God, my God, he's quoting David in Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me? So the the sweep of biblical truth is that, yes, it's okay to ask hard questions. And today I want us to focus on this this, uh, little three-chapter book in uh, Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapters 1, 2, and 3. Um, it's, I'm going to try to set the table, basically, for what Travis is going to be doing for the next month. Um, I'm not maybe going to give all the answers. I'll raise some more questions, possibly, but hopefully just set the table so that we understand uh, where this is coming from. So let's, let's look at this. You can, you can follow along as I read verses 2 and 3, and then also verses 12 and 13. It's up on the screen. It's also on the talk sheet if you have a copy of that. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? And then skipping to verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Pastor Scott and I uh, came to the conclusion, actually uh, the entire staff, Travis as well, Taylor, um, Eric, that... In setting the table for this series, we wanted to start with a, a passage of Scripture or a book of Scripture that dealt with some of the things that we're going to be dealing with. And that's exactly what we find in Habakkuk. We find Habakkuk asking hard questions. In fact, in those first couple of verses, it's, it's just rapid fire. It's like he can't talk fast enough to get his questions out in order to, to, to set the stage for, for what's going on in his, in his context. So I want to take a half step back and I want to talk about his context because without understanding where Habakkuk is coming from, uh, we, we risk applying things that maybe don't, don't apply to us. Habakkuk was a contemporary of some other well-known prophets, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. 
the northern power of Assyria, which had taken the northern kingdom of Israel off into captivity, it was in its, on its last legs. It was waning. But arising in their place was this, this world power called the Chaldeans, which is Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, that great king of Babylon, had already defeated the Egyptians in the year 605 B.C., and he was about to attack Judah, which is where Habakkuk is. Habakkuk's uh, peer, Jeremiah, had, had already announced that Babylon would, in fact, invade Judah. They would, in fact, destroy Jerusalem and the temple, and they would, in fact, send the nation into exile. And this does happen over a 20-year period. That actually happens. God uses these pagan people, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, who were ruthless. He uses them to judge his people. It's interesting, though, by the time we get to chapter 3, and we're going to do kind of a very quick sweep of this book, when we get to chapter 3, we discover that it's, it's written as a poetic psalm or song, which leads some scholars to believe that Habakkuk may have, in fact, been a priest who had led worship in the temple. If that's the case, then he's very much like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, priests who had been called to be prophets, which, as a pastor, if God chooses, and I'm a teaching pastor, if God chooses me to somehow change and become a prophet, that's going to be really hard. And it was really hard for Habakkuk to, to, to segue from one role into another. It, it was a very difficult ministry, particularly because now, as a prophet, Habakkuk's job is to hear from God and proclaim what he's hearing. And guess what? Habakkuk ain't hearing anything. <laughs> it's, like, it's like God is silent. Uh, how long do I have to call for help and you'll not hear? Just an aside... I think sometimes when we think we're not hearing God, maybe it's because we're not seeing Him act out in the ways that we would expect Him to act out. Which means we may not have a full, clear picture of who God really is. Now, what I just said there is actually going to be expanded in this prophecy from Habakkuk. Because he comes to that conclusion Apparently, I don't have a complete view of who God really is. I need a bigger understanding of who God is in order to be able to hear Him speak to me. Now, His name means to embrace. Some commentators say that it possibly might even mean to wrestle. Um, the, the idea of, of how you could see grapplers or wrestlers kind of embracing one another. And in fact, that's what, that's what Habakkuk does. He, he embraces the harshness of his of his culture, of what's going on around him. He embraces it fully, and out of that comes this prophecy. Look at chapter 2, verse 4, because the key verse in this three-chapter prophecy is chapter 2, verse 4. Actually, it's a, just a very quick phrase at the end of that verse. The righteous shall live by his faith. Sound familiar? It should we just celebrated the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And that verse was key in terms of Martin Luther's understanding of how, how to get in a right relationship with God, how to get into the, God's kingdom, into heaven. The righteous shall live by faith. In fact, <clears throat> that phrase is so significant. This tiny little phrase tucked away here in this 
almost unknown prophecy in the Old Testament is discussed in great detail three different places in the New Testament. In the Gospel, uh, excuse me, in the book of Romans, specifically chapter 1, verse 17, in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 11, and then also in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 38. The Apostle Paul, in his book, in his letter to the Romans, he unpacks the righteous shall live by faith by defining what it means to be righteous. Literally, to be declared righteous, declared just, in a legal sense, because of the finished work of Jesus. But in Galatians, Paul takes it a little step further, and he says, the righteous shall live by faith. He talks about what that means in terms of how to live. How do you live by faith? And he unpacks that in Galatians chapter 3. And then the writer to the Hebrews, he focuses on faith. His whole point is to, or the writer to the Hebrews is to, is to make the, the preeminency of, of Jesus over everything else in the, in the, the Jewish religion. And so he makes a, 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 big, uh, a big push for what faith is all about. So the righteous shall live by faith in Habakkuk 2.4 becomes kind of the, 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 the text from which three other books of Scripture are written. I want you to also notice, just let your eyes scan down the page or the screen, <laughs> if, if you're using the digital version of God's Word. Just pass down the, the, the first chapter there, those verses. You'll, you'll see that Habakkuk's vocabulary is quite harsh indicating that times are tough, times are difficult, times are dangerous. He uses words like violence, iniquity, destruction, strife, contention, injustice. It's almost as if Habakkuk is writing to our present day, right? It's like he he could be tweeting right now, and it would make sense to people who are on Twitter because he's dealing with present day stuff, things that that we're hearing about in the news, that we're reading about day in and day out. I want us to focus here in chapter 1 on uh, two specific questions that Habakkuk begins his prophecy with. And again, if, if, if you're a life group leader or if you're super active in your life group, there, there's room on this talk sheet. You can, you can make some notes along the way here because you're going to be talking about this this week. The first question is actually found in verses 2 through 4. And in those verses, basically, Habakkuk, as he cries out, how long must I call for help? He is, he's basically saying, God, why do you seem so indifferent? I'm calling, I'm asking, I'm not getting any answers. God appears to be indifferent. And then in verse 5, God begins to answer him. I want you to notice what God says. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days. And you would not believe it if you were told. And then he goes on to say, look, God speaking, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, these harsh Babylonians, and I'm going to use them as instruments of judgment in my hand to bring about judgment upon my chosen people. Well, God's answer to Habakkuk's first question doesn't seem very helpful. If I'm sitting where Habakkuk is, it's like, thanks a lot, but that really doesn't help me, God. In fact, it raises another question. It's almost like God's answer is not an answer at all. It's like it raises 
another question, it creates a new problem, and that is inconsistency. So then if you look at verse 12, you'll see, uh, verses 12 through 14, that Habakkuk's second question is, God, how can you be so uh, inconsistent? He starts with verse 12 by acknowledging that God is from everlasting. He is the Holy One. He is my God. But why do you tolerate the treacherous? How can a holy God use a wicked nation to punish his own special people? In other words, Habakkuk doesn't understand the working of God. Now, the prophets, what appear to be doubts, or at least his questionings, they're not, they're not those of, of uh, maybe a friend of yours who would be a fault-finding uh, critic or skeptic of the gospel. No, these are the honest heartfelt searchings of a holy prophet of God. You know, there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Like Habakkuk, the doubter might question God and might even debate with God, as David did, as Jeremiah did, as Moses did. But the doubter never abandons God. You with me? You, you understand that? You see that? The, the difference, though, the contrast with unbelief is that unbelief is rebellion against God. Right, the, the, the doubter does not abandon God. The unbeliever rebels against God. It's a refusal to accept what God says, what God does. Unbelief is an act of the will. While doubt is generally born out of some sort of pain, maybe a, maybe a troubled mind or a, or a broken heart or some sort of pain. We discover, and again, if we did an entire series on Habakkuk, which I think would be great, at least three weeks, maybe four, we would discover that in Habakkuk's case, doubts can in fact express a maturing faith. So, one of the key points I want to get across this morning, if and maybe the key point, is yes, it is okay to ask. It is okay to ask hard questions of God, some of the ones that we're going to try to answer the next four weeks, as long as we're growing in that process and interacting with God and getting a bigger picture and understanding of who God is. It's when we turn our backs on Him in unbelief and reject what we learn about Him is where we run into problems. Habakkuk in the midst of his doubts and questions and just not understanding God, he never turns his back on God. So my point is, is that doubts can, in fact, uh, demonstrate a growing faith or express a growing faith. In fact, as we're going to see, they can be doubts can become a step towards praising faith, a step towards turning the corner and ultimately giving praise and worship of God. God, God does give Habakkuk some answers, and I'm not going to go into great detail on these, but I do want to call them to your attention. First of all, God's answers are not what Habakkuk expected, nor are they what Habakkuk hoped for. And that's what's great about that is we can relate to that, because God is still doing that. You know, our our view of God, our image of God, needs needs to be. Uh, retrofitted. <laughs> it needs to be re-engineered. And that's what's happening with Habakkuk. It's okay to ask God tough questions. You know what? God is not intimidated by our questions 
or by the questions of the most savvy skeptic that you know, maybe that you work with, who thinks they have it all together. You know, it's interesting, there's multiple guys like that and a couple of women as well on the Internet who just love to, to be skeptical about God and take all kinds of shots. And you can see it in their face on these podcasts. They're just really smug about that. Well, you know what? The God we love and serve, he's not intimidated by that at all. It's okay. But as believers in Jesus, as Christians, um, let's, let's be prepared that his answers may not necessarily fit our parameters. <laughs> kind of the Christian bubble that we've created for ourselves. Or, and his answers may not meet our expectations either. Because God is, is, is going to reveal different aspects of who he is and his character. But to kind of suffice Habakkuk's questions, in chapter 2, uh, God actually does give him five quick answers. They're, they're called the five woes. W-O-E-S, like whoa. You know, like woe on you. This is about to happen. The first one's in verse 6. Uh, God pronounces a woe against the Chaldeans, whom he's about to use in his judgment, but because they were proud and arrogant, and they extorted people, and they had selfish ambition, God says, woe to you. In verse 9, they're covetous, they're greedy. Again, arrogance is mentioned. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 12, they're known for exploiting people and building a city on bloodshed. God pronounces a woe on them. In verse 15, they're known for drunkenness and violence. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. God pronounces judgment to come on them. And then finally, uh, I think the key one is in verse 19. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! And then he goes on to say, To a mute stone, Arise! And that is your teacher? God says to them, a piece of stone, a piece of wood, that's your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all inside it. And so God pronounces uh, five woes against these Chaldeans that even he himself is using. Here's what I find interesting. Habakkuk raises questions, legitimate questions that are very concerning to him. And you know what? God doesn't necessarily provide an explanation to him. But what he does do is God provides a revelation to him. God reveals aspects of his character that Habakkuk didn't realize were there. That same thing applies to us. When, when we have times of doubt, you know what we need, honestly? We need a bigger view of God. I know this is something that Debbie and I have talked about for years, and this is kind of a theme of hers, is that when we don't understand stuff, when we, when we doubt God at what He's doing, maybe in our family, in our personal lives, even in our, in our country, in the world, guess what? We need a bigger view of God. And that's, that's the case here with Habakkuk. God doesn't owe us any explanations. God is God and we're not. Right? So he doesn't owe us that, but he does graciously reveal himself. In fact, that's what we just celebrated last week. He chose the, the most gracious way of revealing himself in the person of his son, Jesus, who, although God took on the confines of our flesh, he became like us and then he walked around among us and he lived just like us. 
and was tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. Why? So that then he could die for us. And as a result of that, Hebrews says, we can walk with confidence into his presence because he is that great high priest. It's interesting, though. Our, our views of God tend to get a little distorted, right? Particularly when we're complaining. <laughs> see, I don't see that happening with Habakkuk here. He's, he's raising legitimate questions but he's not really complaining about that. He's, he's, in fact, look at the beginning of, of chapter 2. <laughs> I, I love this. Habakkuk, he's put his questions on the table. He's not understanding what God's about to do. And then he says, I'm going to stand on my guard post, and I'm going to station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. In other words, he asks his questions, And then he zips it, and he waits for God to answer. And that's a real model for us. That's a real encouragement for us as well. Ask the hard questions, but then wait for God to answer those questions. And even though uh, the initial answers don't seem to really help Habakkuk, uh, God is still going to answer him. And, And, you know, sometimes, or maybe oftentimes, That's how God works. God acts in ways that we don't expect, we don't understand. Remember that passage in Isaiah 55? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, God says through Isaiah. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth... So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The great uh, British uh, expositor G. Campbell Morgan, who lived in the late uh, uh, 19th century, early 20th century, said this, Our joy is in proportion to our trust. Okay, right. But then he went on to say, And our trust is in proportion to our knowledge of God not experiencing the joy of being one of God's children, then maybe uh, we need a bigger view of, of God. And maybe we need to understand more of who God is. This is one of the reasons Debbie and I um, chose to join the team at New Life, is because of this emphasis on uh, God's Word. All of God's Word. I've... Uh, I've written a quote in some other contexts, and I've used it in a variety of situations around the world. But let me just give it to you. Christ-like character is not formed from a random collection of favorite texts and personal experiences. What I would call the Hallmark greeting card approach to spirituality. Okay, And we can all relate to that, right? Because we've got a bunch of them that came to us from you know, friends and family and uh, Christmas greetings. But in terms of a, of Christ-like character, the spiritual formation that's necessary within our lives, it, it, it's, that doesn't suffice. That's not enough, right? But it comes by digesting whole books of Scripture, whole books of the Bible, and allowing the Holy Spirit, who inspired these books to begin with, to determine a balanced spiritual diet. Again, that's one of the primary reasons that we're part of new life is because of that commitment 
to plowing through Scripture. We're in, the, in a long series in the book of Romans right now. We're taking a quick break here before, thankfully, we jump back into Romans chapter 8, because Romans chapter 8 is exciting, right? You know, I, don't, I didn't envy Scott or Travis plowing through Romans chapter 7 in the month of December during Advent season. It's like, there's, there's a real disconnect there for me. But anyways, that's, that's for a discussion for another time. But, but I'm grateful that we do that. Because the Holy Spirit inspired that book of Romans. And by submitting ourselves to to Scripture and plowing through it verse by verse, line by line, word by word, text by text, our character gets formed more into the image of Christ than if we're just jumping around doing this topical series here, you know, five ways to this, four four aspects of that, three whatever. Um, this, This commitment to what I call whole Bible Disciple building is a real strength of this church. And it's what's needed in, so that we have a bigger, expanded view of who God really is. So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you, you know, standing here right on the precipice of the end of 2017 and jumping into 2018. I want to encourage you to really invest time in 2018. Not just coming to church and continuing to plow through books like Romans together, but just in your own personal time of reading through whole books of Scripture, allowing God's Word to to just kind of simmer inside your life as opposed to just hopping around and jumping on the things that 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 you, that you cater to the most. If if I was, hmm, if I preached week in and week out on the stuff that I just really like in Scripture, it'd be like having dessert every week, and you wouldn't get that the meat and potatoes of what's necessary to grow the spiritual life. Very quickly, let me just conclude with uh, what. What I would call what, and Scott and I talked about this this week and dialogued back and forth about this sermon. We came to the conclusion that as we go through this series, Habakkuk seems to provide some assurances that we can hang on to. So if you're taking notes, just write down the word assurances. These are some assurances that we learn from Habakkuk even while we're in the midst of asking the hard questions. There are, there are five of them that I want to give you very quickly. The first one is found in this description in chapter 1 of God saying, I'm going to use the Chaldeans to, to judge. The first one is this, God is at work. God is at work even when we're unaware of it or even if we don't agree with it which was Habakkuk's case. God is still at work. Number two, God's character remains unchanged. In verse 12, again, I've already read this, but Habakkuk affirms the character of God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? God's character remains unchanged. Number three, the key verse, verse verse four four of chapter two, the righteous will live by faith. We can ask Tough questions. We can get unpleasant answers, but we can still end up in a, in a place of strong, growing faith. Why? Because that's what the righteous do. That's what those who have been declared righteous by the shed blood of Jesus, that's what we do. We grow. We live. And that's a, that's a present tense, act, ongoing action verb there. We are, you, you could say, living. We are living by faith. Day in and day out, week in and week out. Number four is found in verse 14. 
in the midst of those woes is this great statement, God's, uh, the, the knowledge and the glory of the Lord will, will cover the earth like water covers the sea. In fact, the earth will be filled with the knowledge. God's glory will fill the earth. That's an assurance we can have in the midst of tough question asking. God's goal in history doesn't change. It remains the same. The salvation of his people and the glory of his name. And then the fifth one. So it's God is at work. God's character remains unchanged. The righteous live by faith. God's glory will fill the earth. And verse 20 of chapter 2. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. God is still on the throne. In the midst of moral failures, in the midst of um, international uh, problems and warfare and terrorist plots and all of that, God is still on his throne. God is still in control. Yes, Satan has, given, has, has been given a, a period of time to kind of wreak havoc on this earth, but he's on a short leash. God is still on the throne. The Lord is in his holy temple. Well, what results from this? The results that come from this are, are expressed in chapter 3 in what is a, a, an exulting song of, of praise. Habakkuk teaches us that we can face our questions, we can face our doubts, and we can do that honestly. We can take them humbly to the Lord, and then we wait on his word. And for his word to teach us. But then our response is, the result is, we worship. We worship him. No matter what we see, no matter how we feel. The, the lyrics of the songs this morning that Arthur led us in are, are, are so conducive to that. We, we worship him in the midst of that. And notice, one of the best uh, passages in all of Scripture, and it's certainly a passage that describes what it means to live by faith. Look at the conclusion of chapter 3, starting in verse 17, 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. It's not a very good situation here. Though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, what does he say? Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. See that intentional act of the will to worship. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. That's what results when, we, when we're free to ask hard questions but in the process, we become men and women who live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this story of Habakkuk, this prophecy from Habakkuk, and the fact that it speaks volumes to us where we are here in the 21st century. It's beyond amazing that you would choose to reveal your truth, your word, through a man like this that would still speak uh, volumes to us today. We're, we're in awe of who you are. We're in awe of the truth of your word. And Father, as I prayed earlier, I would pray again. I pray that the truth of your word would be driven home deeply into the soil of our hearts and into the soil of our lives so that it would 
grow and then bear fruit. Bear fruit to your glory. Bear fruit to the glory of your name. Bear fruit to your kingdom. And we ask all of this in the powerful, the precious, and the holy name of Jesus. Amen.